We've heard a lot of discussion and debate in recent weeks about the tensions between the working class and the elites. But who are the elites? What do they do? How do they operate? And what do they care about? What exactly is driving this social and economic class? It loves to wage culture wars. It feels that it is at the vanguard of anti-racism, anti-sexism, and anti-anti-immigrant sentiments. So it dictates those values from above, and it polices language. Catherine Liu is a professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Irvine, and a prominent leftist thinker. Her latest book is called Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. It takes a close look at this ascendant elite, which, she writes, often boasts about doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways. Virtue Hoarders is a pointed and often hilarious polemic against the ethos driving so much of our culture right now. Catherine Liu is here for a conversation about all of this and more today on Lean Out. Catherine, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me, Tara. Thank you so much for coming on. As I mentioned to you before, I've read your book several times. I'm very excited to speak with you about it today. I wanted to start by talking a bit about the ethos of our elites. So since it is so confusing to so many people I know, can you just give us to start a brief definition of the professional managerial class? This is a class that has credentials. It usually involves people who are members of this class are usually members of a professional organization like the American Medical Association. For me, it was the Modern Languages Association. Then, you know, there's the American Association of University Professors. They're not unions. They were created in the early part of the 20th century to regulate the sort of Wild West practice of medicine and the completely stupid university education people were getting at what are now our elite private universities. They were not modeled on research. You know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton were all seminaries educating the sons of elites to, you know, mostly become seminarians, to become priests, pastors. So there were improvements with modern technology, with industrialization, with the complex nature of modern production lines, we needed professionals to manage this and to live in an industrial society. We decided that we needed experts to, in the end, what's happened is execute the will of the bosses. So these elites, PMC, are below the capitalists, right? There are like pure capitalists, like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who own companies and the means of production, they're about 745 billionaires. They're probably more centimillionaires. And then below that, now there's a class that has gotten a lot of awards for promoting the status quo, for pacifying worker unrest, for not cultivating mass politics. And this class didn't used to always be so reactionary, but as John and Barbara Ehrenreich pointed out, by the end of the 60s and with the demise of the counterculture, what actually happened was college graduates just got a bigger and bigger chunk of the pie than they had before the working class and the sort of what people used to call the blue collar aristocracy truck drivers, I know, are having this huge unrest now, or industrial manufacturing jobs were just squeezed 
And many of these jobs were taken at that point by working class men. So it was really convenient for the PMC to continue to demonize the working class for its backward values. And it originated, I think, out of the big divide in the U.S. between attitudes about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that elites were actually more for the war than the working class, because elites, when we look at the polls, the elite kids went to college and they got deferrals and was working class people of all races who saw their sons and some of their daughters get drafted and sent to that horrible endeavor. But the class recently, I think, has really become more and more technocratic. It embraces like a kind of engineering efficiency model of management, but it loves to wage culture wars. For its um, pleasures, it feels that it is at the vanguard of anti-racism, anti-sexism, and anti-anti-immigrant sentiments. So it dictates those values from above and it polices language for a great deal in its sort of culture industry mode. So there's the engineers and the IT people who are working at creating incredible, really efficient and a low cost manufacturing lines, oftentimes moving them outside of North America to Asia and Southeast Asia increasingly, But there's another part of this elite who are closer to us. I guess they do. They produce content for media. They are in higher education. And Barbara and John Aronheim says that they've completely occupied the liberal professions. They monopolize those professions. And I've noticed recently that their rhetoric might be high liberal, but their practice is actually highly censorious. They think they're against authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, but they brook less and less dissent. And it's a really frightening and mm-hmm. confusing time for most people. But I have to tell you that I continue to get you know, letters, emails every day from people from young doctors to lawyers to um, first-generation professors, working-class people who you know, sort of educated themselves, gotten white-collar jobs. And they're like, you know, the sense of unease and unhappiness I've been feeling you really put into words. And I haven't, you know, been able to really articulate what is wrong with my workplace and my work life until I read your book. But what I really wanted to emphasize too, is that the PMC doesn't ever want to talk about work. It like works as passion. You're supposed to always be working. (laughs) And there's a raw alienation that people are feeling from these elites as they execute the will of the capitalists, the bosses, the real bosses. Mm. I hope it's, that's not too technical, but no, no. And it's, it is so interesting that you're getting those letters. I mean, the book is so fiercely written, but also so funny. And I'm not surprising that it's resonating in that way. Yeah. And they often say, you know, I don't, I can't talk about this at work. This is what I've been thinking. So we all feel this deep pressure to conform mm. to the orthodoxy. And I think that's what you guys are facing in Canada. And one of the orthodoxies in Canada is, I think, this kind of importation wholesale of PMC neoliberal values. And then you ratchet them up. I find that the most depressing is that there used to be more like left social democratic alternatives to the American pseudo progressive ideology. But both Germany and Canada have taken this discourse and doubled down on it. 
Yes. And there's so much internal hatred of the working class. That's what I was trying to get at too, is that there's just the professional managerial class always wants to see itself as the actor and the good guy in any drama. And so it's always like helping people who are helpless in their imagination. It's like the poor are always helpless or the marginal always helpless, which is exactly the opposite of what Marx talks about in terms of working class solidarity. There are many more, the masses, there are many more working class people than there are PMC people or bosses or capitalists. And you have to find those bonds and make that kind of mass politics. The PMC doesn't care about that anymore. It wants niche politics, more and more niche, less and less universal type rhetoric or language or political policy even. And I just find like the Canadian situation, the German situation, really terrifying because what it actually has produced is, you know, some of the biggest mouthpieces of the alt-right and far-right. I want to read you a quote. There's a quote about the sort of superiority that you're challenging that I, I want to introduce. So as the fortunes of the PMC elites rose, the class insisted on its ability to do ordinary things in extraordinary, fundamentally superior and more virtuous ways. As a class, it was reading books, raising children, eating food, staying healthy, and having sex as the most culturally and affectively advanced people in human history. Let's talk about, let's start with talking about raising children. How do you see this dynamic playing out right now, particularly during the pandemic? Well, so before the pandemic, there was already so much competition for educational resources, right? And PMC has set up this competitive meritocratic world where everyone has to achieve all the time. And so with its own children, there was already like an overinvestment in childhood education, privatized childhood education, right? After school programs, sports programs for these elite kids. And what I discovered during the pandemic was that private schools remained open and did much more in-person learning. And it was the kids in public schools, lower income, working class kids, minority kids who suffered the most because they had no alternatives and they had no after-school enrichment programs with you know COVID protocols. They were just home. They have been just home. But the thing is about like all these mommy blogs and now mommy podcasts is that we have a generation. And I've noticed this like two generations, because it was like actually my son's generation too, of upper middle-class women, Muslim white, not, not all of them, who are highly educated. They marry within the class. And because of the dot-com boom, their husbands like start making like huge sums of money. And when they have kids, they decide like, you know, I might have a law degree or, you know, I might've been a coder myself, but this guy's making 300K a year. And I have two kids and I'm going to stay home. So you have these really smart women with no place to put their energy and they invest it on their children. Mm. And so they have these mommy blog networks are, you know, all about this kind of optimization, parenting, the parent-child relationship. So we call it the helicopter parent or this kind of over-invested parent, but there is that. And then the really wealthy members of this class send their kids to private schools where they have like this nominal progressive education. I don't know if you have this in Canada, but these very, very expensive private schools that were once founded on the principles of liberal education, progressive education. I mentioned the Chicago Lab School, the Little Red Schoolhouse. These were all like super left places, like in the 20s and 30s. Maria Montessori's philosophy of, you know, learning by doing is really a 
part of this. It's about like giving manual labor and manufacturing all of this dignity and everything. These places are all filled with children of the upper echelon PMC elites. And the parents think like their ability to pay $55,000 a year is actually their superior parenting technique. And that is just bullshit because <laughs> people have been raising children for years. Children have thrived or not thrived based on many, many conditions. But this idea now is that you have this hothouse environment that very, very wealthy people can put their children in. In its urban elites, And they're getting like all of this great education. Now, I'm not saying the actual teachers and the philosophy is wrong. That should have been democratized. We should have everyone's kids be in classrooms with plants and with natural, you know, woods and whatever felt, you know, these like beautifully, you know, from five to eight, the kind of progressive education schools are just so tactile and so wonderful and lovely. And there's all this reading and like drumming and all this enriching activities, but they become part of the PMC's monopoly on its own virtue as actually just a form of consumption because it's fully commodified, Mm. that education. Try to get that education if you're making $48,000 a year and have four kids. You're not going to get that education. I feel like our public schools are trying to do as much as they can. They're as good as they can be. But, you know, even with the Zoom thing, it just like created such disparity between, you know, what was possible with small private schools and what was possible with large public schools with huge populations. But the thing that I like the most about that section. No, I mean, the childhood thing is very important to me. I wish I had done more about the sex thing because oh, yeah. in a post-sexual revolution, like feminist, like sex positive attitudes about like human, kind of biological, erotic, reproductive activity or human sexual activity, homosexual or otherwise, has been so rationalized and niche marketed in a sex positive manner. And these people think that they're being transgressive and carrying this message of information about sex that will make sex more enjoyable to you. And it's like people have been having sex for 50,000 years as, you know, homo sapiens (laughs) without these manuals. I mean, there are certain improvements like, you know, birth control, huge improvement. But do we need like sex positive blogs, like 5,000, you know, content producers to promote this? We already have porn, which is a huge problem on the Internet for young people. And we have Tinder and Grindr. So the more rationalizing, more information we have, I feel like the harder it is for young people to actually have sex because there's just too much information. But the PMC loves information about like basic human experiences that they would like to be able to define for everyone. And on that point of sex, there's another quote I want to read that I found quite interesting. In the 1970s, as budding PMC boomers dabbled in Eastern religions, privileged self-exploration over tradition and pursued emotional and sexual experimentation, they looked at the working class as out-of-touch authoritarians who married for life and lived in traditional two-parent families. Today, after decades of austerity, working class families and kinship networks are at a breaking point. Talk to me a bit about the consequences of that. So now, if you have a college education, your likelihood of being divorced is much lower than someone who just has a high school education. Working class 
communities in America have been so devastated. There are just no, the structures of survival and, you know, like emotional relationships are really, you know, have this cast of economic instability and precarity. And so now we have these professional manager class families that are so stable in part because of the two-income family. Like it's called a two-income trap or, you know, Ehrenreich, Barbara Ehrenreich has analyzed this many, many economists. And among them, Elizabeth Warren in her old days talked about this is that the one way that upper middle-class families have been able to manage their, to afford real estate, to afford childcare, to afford the sort of upper middle-class life that their parents might've had if they came from that kind of milieu is that they need to have two incomes. And one of the things that the PMC has to do is you know, unite its assets, men and women. And that is a very pragmatic and non-romantic way of coupling. One of the things that I think Aaron Reich talked about, and then, you know, that asshole David Brooks in New York Times mentioned this too, is that in the pages of the New York Times marriage announcements, there are no interclass marriages any longer. We can celebrate like interracial marriage, but like, college graduates marry college graduates. And most of the marriages that are posted on there are of very elite college graduates, like do-do-do with his MBA from Wharton is marrying do-do-do with her MD from Harvard Medical School. They got married on, you know, Sanibel Island in Florida, beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And institution of marriage is one of like asset and credential unification, let's say. And so In the 70s, when there was much more sexual experimentation, people thought of the working class as squares because they wanted like, you know, they were religious, they wanted marriage. They lived in these stable, you know, what we would call like heteronormative relationships. They had, you know, they valued like private life and family life. Well, working class people don't even have that anymore. Their relationships are highly unstable and You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the kinds of relationships that they build are oftentimes, you know, result in like, you know, unwanted pregnancies. More and more children are born in the working class out of wedlock than in wedlock. And it's just the opposite in um, in the PMC world. And so I feel like there's this kind of like sexual, romantic, erotic horizon that is really attenuated and limited for PMC people. Like if you're on Tinder or Grindr, you're like, maybe you're looking for that hot hookup, but you're also looking for like, who has the assets or what are they bringing to the table with their assets? And what what do I bring with my assets? And I think like for people outside of this class, there's still an idea that you can have like this romantic, passionate relationship without calculation in the back of your mind. The PMC is calculated it's the value of every relationship. It's extremely transactional. And this is something that C. Wright Mills was talking about in White Collar, is that the American white collar worker doesn't know when to stop working because everything is just all about networking and presentation of personality. And when you see like working class people now being presented in you know PMC-dominated media, they're either victims or they're angry like terrorists angry, violent people ready to do something horrible. 
And this idea of like the emotional affective life for them just seems very attenuated. But in fact, when you look at how actually the PMC is talking about its own relations and acts on its own relations, it seems to be like so psychologically and subjectively impoverished right now. Mm, That's so interesting. I did want to speak briefly about racism. There's a really funny part in the book where you basically say that the PMC solution to racism is to read books and have righteous feelings. <laughs> Can you unpack that for me? Oh my God. I'm taking Hillary Clinton's master class because I'm doing a podcast about it, like a funny podcast. And their idea of Huma Abedin and Hillary Clinton talk about radical empathy. It's like what you have to do to be anti-racist is to just they literally say, put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's what I was talking about with To Kill a Mockingbird and Obama's reading and empathy. It's like self-cultivation. Being anti-racist really means cultivating yourself and then denouncing other people. And then you read books to cultivate yourself and then you can judge other people for not having cultivated themselves at all. So there are no actual political consequences for anti-racism. It's all etiquette. It's like all social policing. So you can like names and call people racist and cancel them and then feel good about your own anti-racism. The whole white fragility movement where, you know, HR comes in and teaches you not to be racist has actually made the self-cultivation a priority at work. So you have to self-cultivate. You have to, you know, take the classes. Then you realize there are historical, objective things that we can all learn about racism without being part of this like denunciatory web of uh, like pseudo-religious people with a religious pseudo-religious attitude about what is good and what is upright. What really, really worries me is that the ways that we're indoctrinated in this way of being like anti-racist, which is completely internal and individualized, but also very like Salem witch hunty, like, oh, there's a racist, there's a racist, but I'm not racist. That does not translate into policy, that does not translate into political solidarity, is that the people who are excluded from this kind of discourse, which are working class people or non-college educated people, which still make up, you know, 60 to 65 percent of the American population, they won't have it. They're not participating. They're excluded from it. They're not taking an anti-racism training module that they learned in college. And so, you know, if People go, oh, my God, the divide between in America is so bad. It's like, yeah, look at the class divide. You know, if you just look at conservatives and liberals, yes, that divide is terrible. But nobody actually wants to look at the class divide and the difference between the life worlds of working class people and these like college educated people. So I guess in my sense, like people are like, oh, yeah, but you're a professor. You have a really good life. You're like at a really elite university. It's like it's really not about me. But if you want to make it about me, I would just invite everyone to be a class trader, like grow a pair. No, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. But, you know, be courageous and align yourself with that doubt and that critique and that negativity that you're feeling about what's going on in your workplace. I know that not everyone can do this. But I think it's so important that some of us start to do this so that we have a breakaway, maybe with class traders within the class itself, because otherwise it's just going to be like a horror show, dystopic nightmare of economic distribution to the wealthy and the elites 
angry, sort of politically different working class, people who might be able to be inspired by some weird demagogue like Trump or, you know, I don't know what you, you guys had like Doug Ford or some, you guys have your crazy right wing people too. And then this like class in the middle that sort of massaging all of these things and creating more division actually, and it will really make democracy dysfunctional if it hasn't already. Because the one thing that, you know, my friend and colleague Jennifer Silva finds in her interviews with working class people in the coal region of Western Pennsylvania is they constantly say, and this is in many, many studies and ethnographies of working class people in all over the world, actually, is, you know, politics doesn't matter. Nobody cares about us. Nothing makes a difference. And you're like, you know what? Where's the lie? Where's the lie in this? I mean, People, liberals might feel really happy that we're normalizing governance because of the Biden administration, but how has that affected working class people in Appalachia, in LA, in New York, in the Rust Belt, in the South? Not really. So they're like just conserving their energy because it's like if I work 10 hours a day and I have to wear a freaking mask and you know I'm just making enough to get by for my family, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to read the New York Times to find out what's happening. Right now, I feel like the center is the problem and the center and centrism is dominated by the values of this class. What you described to me of what's happening in the CBC just seems to be like some kind of competition to be more virtuous and more PMC than Americans. We need public institutions. We need public journalism. It's what we don't have in America, right? Bernie Sanders was like, we need to have nonprofit journalism. This is really important. And so the CBC for me was always like, oh yeah, see, we can have nonprofit journalism. Canada's not that different from us, but it's been completely taken over by these hypocrites who want to seem good instead of reporting on actually what's happening in Canada. It's like those land acknowledgments, which are, you know, I'm just like, who is this addressed to? You know, what does this land acknowledgement actually perform or produce when housing is completely unaffordable for young people and for like 80% of Canadians in urban areas? Mm -hmm. As the same thing in America too. What does this do when speculative housing Bubbles in Vancouver, in Toronto, Montreal have made it impossible for working class people or young people who are just starting out in the world to have like a stable place to live. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. makes me furious. It's a very strange time, a very, very strange time. I want to ask you sort of to close here, and you've touched on this a little bit, but you are a reluctant member of the PMC. I am a very reluctant member of the PMC as well. The left is in a very weird place right now. And you argue in the book, we need to be heretics. Tell me what you think that looks like. Well, right now, like, I think it means insisting upon economic struggles as being the most important struggles having solidarity with workers and worker movements and not conforming and obeying the cultural imperatives to make ourselves seem like virtuous people that are coming from the top, from human resources, from bosses, from private foundations. I mean, in Canada, I don't know, it's more like from governmental foundations. And it's hard, but I think it's like Freud said, the voice of reason is soft 
but it will not be silenced. So don't silence your own voice of reason. Don't silence criticism. Like actually do keep an open mind, which is enormously hard right now, but remain critical. And for me as a Marxist, you know, insist on the political consequences of economic policies as the number one thing that happens in a state that supports this kind of radical inequality and the capitalist mode of production. Sorry to be so wonky and nerdy at the end, but. (laughs) Well, listen, thank you for the conversation today. Thank you for your book. It is a fierce book. It is a funny book. I have so learned a lot from it and just really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much, Tara. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 